Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink. It's August 21st, 2010, Saturday, and this is Yahweh's Covenant People. Eli won't be here tonight, so I'll be doing the program alone. I have a paper here that I started last year and I forgot about. And, and when I was searching for a, um, I had a couple of ideas for, for a program tonight, and I came across this paper I started last year, and, and I thought it would be good to do that paper because then I could have a, a one-segment program that, that addresses the King James-only crowd because I really don't have one of them. So this will be the beginning of that, hopefully before the end of this coming year. It'll be four or five segments because I can only get through a portion of the mistranslations in the King James Bible in one segment. So this is Errors Inspired by Who, Part 1. Examining the claim made by many modern sects that the, King, that the authorized King James Version of the Bible, which I will often refer to here as the AV authorized version, is in itself the inspired word of God. We must ourselves ask this, is God the author of error? Did Yahweh reveal his word directly to man in the English language in the year 1611? If it can be shown that the King James Version of the New Testament contains at least some errors, then it should be reasoned that this version, no matter how venerated, was also translated by infallible men. Certainly, the language of the New Testament, Koine Greek, is still quite well known to us, there having been a tremendous body of literature written in Koine Greek, in addition to what we see in the New Testament. In fact, we have much more classical Greek literature available to us today than we do classical Latin. Here we shall see just how well this language was known by the translators of this venerated edition of those writings which we commonly call the Bible. The first part of this examination shall commence with a walk through some of the translations found in the epistles of the Apostle Paul. And I choose Paul first because his quarter of the New Testament is certainly the most mistranslated. In my own New Testament translations, the Christogenian New Testament, well, which I'll refer to usually here as the CNT, I have many hundreds of differences with the King James Version. Yet not all of them are due to differences in translation alone. Many are due to the differences in the texts of the various manuscripts employed. Many others are rather a difference of interpretation within the wider context of Scripture. With a few exceptions... Here I will neglect most of those and attempt to focus upon the plain errors which can be shown from Greek grammar and the meanings of words as they are known from literature, both biblical and otherwise, and errors of interpretation which can be shown from the immediate context of particular verses within the passages wherein they appear. To begin, Romans 1.4. Paul states, or, or Paul said to state, and declared to be the Son of God by the King James. Paul is often criticized for this phrase. Yet the verb in question, horizo, does not even mean to declare. 
and it is evident from Scripture that not only were there other sons of God, i.e., for example, Deuteronomy 14.1, ye are the children of Yahweh your God, and Luke 3.38, where Luke states explicitly that Adam was the son of Yahweh. But the Yahshua Christ was the son of God long before his passion and resurrection. Aside from the Hebrew Bible, the Greek poets also claimed a status for men as the sons of God, or of a God, for which see Paul's own words at Acts 17.28. Here Paul uses a rhetorical device in order to tell us that Christ proved his own sonship. The verb horizo, according to Liddell and Scott, is basically to divide or to separate from as a boundary. And thus it is evident that Christ was, as I have in a CNT, distinguished as a son of God, which is what Paul is telling us. Paul is not using the word declared, because the verb in question never means declared. Romans 1.18, Paul talks about people who hold the truth in unrighteousness. And this might sound trivial, but can't echo the verb in question has a much stronger meaning than simply to hold, where the verb echo alone would be appropriate. The word means to hold back or to withhold, and thus the phrase is better read, who withhold the truth with injustice or unrighteousness. Romans 2.9 and 2.10. Paul states here, and also of the Gentile, and then, and also to the Gentile, in the King James Version, as, as, as it has in these verses, comparing the Judeans with, not the Gentiles, but the Greeks. There are, there are in these verses, and also at Romans 3.9, at 1 Corinthians 10.32, at 1 Corinthians 12.13, and twice in John 7.35, In the King James, the word Helen, or Helene, Strong's number 1672, which is the Greek word for Greek, in the King James it's translated instead as Gentile. Now this is quite dishonest, since Paul consistently used the Greek word ethnos to refer to the nations. And the AV consistently re renders ethnos as Gentile, or sometimes heathen, or somewhere times nation, everywhere else it appears. Helene is a specific Greek word, which means Greek, and it doesn't mean anything else. Romans 4.1, and, and here's one exception to, to what I said in the introduction, that this is one small example out of many hundreds that may be illustrated which calls into question the authority of the manuscripts from which the King James Version was translated. And here, those much more recent manuscripts depart from nearly all of the early codices known as the Great Onkyos and all the early papyri that have been found attesting to this verse. At Romans 4.1, the Christogonian New Testament reads, 
our forefather Abraham, where the King James Version has only Abraham our father. Out of all the Greek manuscripts, only a very small number, which are dated to no earlier than the 9th century, support the King James reading. All of the earlier manuscripts contain the word forefather, except the Codex Bazai, which is from the 5th century, and which is known to have had a lot of influence over the manuscripts from upon which the King James was based. But it's also known to be a very flawed manuscript. Paul, using the word forefathers, was telling the Romans, and correctly I may add, that Abraham was indeed their natural forefather. Evidently, the King James translators, or the people that compiled the manuscripts, couldn't understand that, and somehow it got changed to father. The difference is whether the Romans are genetic Israel. All of the earliest manuscripts attest that they were. Romans 8.15, the spirit of adoption. The word huiothesia does not by itself ever mean adoption in Greek writings. You won't find one instance where it specifically means adoption. The word means a placement or a position of a son. There were other Greek words used consistently in literature to describe the act of adoption, namely ispoiesis, a noun, ispoieo, a verb, and ispoietos, an adjective. The noun means a making into to describe a son, and that describes the act of adoption in secular Greek writing. While a son can be placed for adoption, where huiothesia may be described to use the act of the placing, this word in itself does not describe the actual adoption, and huiothesia can be used to describe other things, such as the placing of a son into a household or as an heir, which also happens to correctly describe the Christian promise as it is outlined in the Old Testament as well. Therefore, and especially since there is no other indication in the text that the idea of adoption is ever the context, huiothesia should be rendered here the spirit of the position of a son or sons, at Romans 8.23, the phrase waiting for the adoption would be better rendered awaiting the placement of sons. At Romans 9.4, the phrase hon he huiothesia should be whose is the position of sons. It is absolutely dishonest that huiothesia ever be translated as adoption in the New Testament because the word has a much more general meaning. And the translators can only have presumed that the word was used by Paul to refer to adoption. Yet the overall context of Paul's letters and of the New Testament refute such a presumption. Romans 13.10 Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. The Greek of this phrase and I'll bore you with it. Hey agape, ton placeon kakon u ergazitahi, I'm sorry, is not disputed here by any of the manuscripts. This phrase must be rendered, love for him near to you, 
who does not practice evil or love to an evil neighbor does not work. Depending upon whether the verb is considered a part of the subject predicate or a modifier for the object of the statement, which is in this case love. The AV rendering must be rejected because it separates placeon, which is he near to you or neighbor in the AV, and kakon, which is evil. And since both words are in the accusative case, they must be understood as a unit. When we have two words of the same case with the adjective following the noun in Greek, they have to be understood as a unit. Kakon, or evil, clearly being a modifier for the noun placeon in the AV translated neighbor. Paul's intent, especially considering the balance of the statement, which says, therefore, fulfilling of the law is love, is obviously to narrow the scope of the word translated neighbor, as it is understood in the commandment in Romans 13.9, you shall love him near to you, or you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Surely what Paul is saying here is that we are not obligated to love the wicked people who just happen to live in our vicinity. So Paul says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, but then he says, love for a neighbor who practices evil does not work. And we know from experience that Paul is right. Romans 14.6. There are four occurrences of the word curios in this verse, including a clause found in the AV that doesn't exist in the early Greek manuscripts, but I won't even address that. And they are not accompanied with the Greek article. And so rather than being translated Lord, as they are in the AV, they should instead be translated literally, as they appear in the dative case, as with authority. And that's because curios is often used as a substantive when it appears with the article, the proper Greek article. And it is therefore a noun in those cases, i.e., the Lord. The word is basically an adjective, and without the article, it means of persons having power or authority over, to be lord or master of. As an absolute, it could mean authority, authoritative, or supreme. Therefore, this verse, Romans 14.6, is properly read. He who is observing the day observes it with authority, and he who eats, eats with authority, for he gives thanks to Yahweh, and he do, who does not eat with authority eats not, and he gives thanks to Yahweh. The King James, because they're so, that they were so accustomed to seeing curios and writing Lord every time they saw curios, that they made a lot of plain mistakes by maintaining that practice every time they saw the word, even when it wasn't being used as a noun. Romans 14, 7. 
Romans 14, 14, here's a good one. I'm going to quote the King James in part. But to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Here, the Greek word rendered unclean is coinous. And the rendering is absolutely dishonest. The Greek word coinous means profane or common and certainly does not ever mean unclean. The word which is which is translated most frequently in Scripture, unclean, is akathartus. That's a Greek word that does mean unclean, and that's a word which the A-V often translates properly elsewhere as unclean. In fact, coinus and akathartus appear together in Acts 10.14, where the A.V. properly reads, quote, But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And that's translated properly. This phrase at Romans 14.14 14 can honestly only be read, except to he who considers anything to be profane or common. To him it is profane or common. And the difference here is crucial, because things that were unclean were those things that were forbidden to be eaten by the laws of Moses found in the law. However, things that were considered common or profane were merely foods that were not treated properly according to the laws or according to the traditions of the elders. When this verse is properly translated, Romans 14, 14, it is seen that Paul is not advocating the eating of things which are deemed unclean by the law, as so many ignorant men claim. Rather, in context, Paul is talking about the things which are indeed food, but which had been profaned upon the altars of pagan deities. In a first century Greco-Roman city, it was impossible to buy meat which was not sacrificed in such a manner, and that alone is what Paul's advice addresses. Romans 15, 9-11 Let me first quote the AV rendering of this pericope. A pericope is a section of, of a writing or of scripture. Quote, And that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, for this cause I will confess to thee among the Gentiles, and sing unto thy name. And again he saith, Rejoice, ye Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all ye Gentiles, and loud him, all ye people. Verses, verse 9 here paraphrases 2 Samuel 22.50 and Psalm 18.49. In the places where the AZ has Gentiles here in the New Testament, the word is heathen in the AV in those corresponding Old Testament verses in the AV. Verses 10 and 11 quote Deuteronomy 32.43 and Psalm 117.1 respectively. 117.1. 
In those places in the AV, it reads nations, where the AV has Gentiles in the quotes here in Romans. The words Gentile, which is truly not even an English word, heathen and nation in the New Testament, in most cases are used to represent the Greek word ethnos, which is primarily in Greek a nation in the sense of ethnicity. Here and elsewhere it is evident that by translating ethnos into these various words indiscriminately, even where the same passage is quoted, it is rather easy to create false doctrines and to pervert the interpretation of the promises to Abraham and the other patriarchs. While there are a couple of places where we could legitimately translate the word ethnos as heathen, it must be done with great reservation and also with the knowledge that the word does not ever bear the meaning non-Adamite by itself, and that it can also properly and literally be rendered simply as people in these places. Romans 15.16, this is detailed again, I'm sorry, but I have to do it. Tina genetahi he prosphora ton ethnon euprostectos is the Greek phrase which the AV renders that the offering up of the nations might be acceptable, which agrees not at all with the context of Paul's statements. In Romans 15, in this section, Paul is discussing his mission. In 15.15, he says, quote, performing the service of the good message, unquote. And it is clear here and throughout Paul's writing that his mission is to bring that message to the nations. The word prosphora is literally a bringing to. Paul clearly means his own bringing to of the gospel. While euprosdectos, technically, being of the same case and number, modifies prosphora, an acceptable presentation. It is the acceptance, not the offering, that is of or from or even by the nations, not the Gentiles. I ascertain that this is why, where an adjective usually accompanies the noun it modifies, here the adjective follows tone ethnon. So that, quote, that it be a presentation acceptable of or by the nations. If the case and number match that of ethnos, as one would expect in Greek grammar, one would read an offering of the acceptable nations, which we know isn't really the context, even though we would like it to be. Yet, what do the nations have to offer when indeed Christ himself was an offering on behalf of those nations? The nations aren't doing the offering here. An exactly similar grammatical construction appears at Luke 4.19, where the phrase, Keruxe heniaton curiodecton, is properly translated in the AV to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. If the AV followed the same pattern in Luke here that they did in Luke 4.19, I'm sorry, if the AV followed the same pattern in Luke 4.19 that they used here, then Luke 4.19 would have to say, 
to preach that the year of the Lord is acceptable. That alone demonstrates the error that the AV makes here in Romans 15. It's clear that Romans 15, 16 should say, not that the offering of the nations might be acceptable, but that the offering might be acceptable of the nations. The offering of the gospel might be accepted by the nations, is what Paul is saying. I know this is detailed, but I will have these notes posted on Christogenia when the audio is posted, Yahweh willing, tonight. 1 Corinthians one twenty-eight from the AV, and the base things of the world, and the things which are despised, has God chosen. Yeah, and the things which are not, to bring to naught things that are. Yet Paul is certainly not, as the AV has in doing, referencing things here. But rather, he's talking about the various conditions of some of the children of Israel. The AV's, the base things, from Ta Agane, is rather those of ignoble birth, or simply the lowborn, as Little and Scott give an example in their lexicon. Likewise, Ta Exuthenemina should read the despised, or those being despised, the context being people, as is evident from that which precedes and that which follows. This verse, 1 Corinthians one twenty-eight, should therefore have been translated, quote, and the lowborn of the society and the despised Yahweh has chosen. Those that are not in order those that are not in order that he may annul those that are. The words of Christ in his ministry and the fact that he indeed chose his followers from among those of low estate, the humble people of the land, perfectly fits the context of Paul's message here. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 8. The phrase, the princes of this world, in the Christogenian New Testament reads, the governors of this age. There's a lot of confusion over this word, aeon, from which the English word eon is derived. And that word only has a temporal meaning. It never has a spatial meaning. Yet on several occasions, the AV has rendered the word as world, as the translators also always rendered both cosmos and oikumene as world, and thus they obfuscate the differences in meaning among those three entirely different worlds. Words, I'm sorry. Respectively, the three words should be taken to mean an age, which is an aeon, a society, which is cosmos, and a living space for that society, which is oikumene. But I'm going to take this word world a step further, because today we understand this word world as the planet that we live on and everything in it. And that understanding is wrong, and we're about to find that out. It may simply be that the way the AZ translators understood the word world is quite different than how we understand it today. 
And if this is so, then they must be pardoned, except only in this respect. If we investigate the word world in the American Heritage College Dictionary, 3rd edition, we find that it derives from an old and Middle English word spelled W-E-O-R-O-L-D, we're old. So we see that world is a contraction, more or less, of we're old. And we are referred to an entry for a supposed proto-Indo-European word in the appendix of the American Heritage College Dictionary. And that word is we're-o, W-I-R-O. When we check this entry in their Indo-European roots appendix, we find that the word world, or we're old, comes from the Germanic word were, which is akin to the Latin wir, for man, W-E-R. And the Germanic word ald, which is a life or an age, from which we get our word old. And that put together, the word world means the age of man. Man age, that's what the word means. Therefore, originally, world is a temporal term and not a spatial term. It means our Adamic age. And it does not mean everyone on the planet or the planet itself. Our confusion over the meaning of this word world has led us into total confusion when attempting to understand our own literature, especially our Bibles. Why do we let Satan publish our dictionaries? The world is the age of Adamic man in its original English, and it should mean nothing else. 1 Corinthians 4.14 While it does not seem to make a big difference, the AV's mistreatment of the word entrepo certainly does have an impact where it appears in several verses. Entrepo is defined by Liddell and Scott as to feel shame or fear, where they cite only the New Testament for this use at Entrepo Part 2, Section 4 of their definition. Yet, this is not the general sense of the word, which basically means to turn about, linger, hesitate, to turn towards, to give heed to, to pay regard to, to respect or to reverence. Therefore, I must ask, how could it mean anything differently only where it appears in the New Testament? I cannot agree that entrepo should ever mean to shame. The AV also has to be ashamed for this word at 2 Thessalonians 3.14, at Titus 2.8. But then again, it has it correctly defined as the Greeks used it, to revere or reverence at Matthew 21.37, Mark 12.6, Luke 20.13, and Hebrews 12.9, and to regard at Luke 8. 18.2 and 
1 Corinthians 4.14 in the CNT reads, I do not write these things regarding you, but as I would advise my beloved children. Now the real difference is whether we perceive an authoritarian Paul who seeks to shame his audience, as the King James Version has it, and to do that we have to make the word mean the exact opposite that it, that it meant in Greek, or whether we see a Paul who's an adjuring Paul exhorting his audience as a brother. In my opinion, it is surely the later, and that agrees with the use of the word in all secular Greek writings. 1 Corinthians 6.4 In the King James Version, this verse may lead one to believe that judges should be selected from among those whom we hate. The AV has this verse, and I quote, If then you have judgments of things pertaining to this life, set them to judge who are least esteemed in the church. Should we really appoint judges that we hate to judge our trials? Or, or judges that we have no esteem for? Yet the medium voice in Greek, when used with verbs, as the verb exuthenemenus is here, and that's the word exuthenemenus, indicates that the recipient of the action is also the receiver. That's how the medium voice is to be read in Greek, unless it's what's called an exponent medium voice verb, which means it's to be read as an active. There are some of those in the New Testament. But the King James basically ignores all of the medium voice verbs in, in Greek. They almost always ignore the medium voice of verbs in the King James translation. The medium voice when used with verbs indicates that the recipient of the action is also the receiver. And therefore, here Paul is advising us to appoint judges, not those from among us whom we have no esteem for, but those who are the most humble. The CNT translates this verse, quote, So then, if you should have trials of things pertaining to this life, those who esteem themselves least in the assembly, they will be set to judge. That's how this verse should be read. 1 Corinthians 6.5, as we've seen above with the verb entrepo at 1 Corinthians 4.14, 1 Corinthians 6.5 begins in the AV, quote, I speak to your shame, unquote. The word rendered shame here is entrape, and it's the noun form of the verb entrepo we just discussed above. Little and Scott define the word as a turning towards, respect or reverence for one as the Greeks use the word, but then they add shame or reproach, New Testament, where again, Liddell and Scott cite only the New Testament for this alleged negative meaning of the word. Now, it must be noted that throughout Liddell and Scott, there is no version of the New Testament except the AV, which is understood to refer to the New Testament. It's the only version they recognized. Now, entrope, this noun, 
only appears twice in the King James, and on both occasions, here and again at 1 Corinthians 15.34, the word may clearly mean respect. It is obvious to this writer that Liddell and Scott merely followed the AV in this error, and that entrope in the New Testament means exactly what it does in secular Greek writing, a turning towards respect or reverence for one. The CNA translates this sentence here, I speak from respect to you. The AV and its followers make this word out to mean the exact opposite of what it meant to the secular Greek people of the first century. 1 Corinthians 6.12 in the AV reads, quote, All things are lawful to me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. While this reading is possible, since the Greek word, exestin, may mean lawful, however, this reading leads one to believe that Paul would simply dismiss the Old Testament laws of Yahweh our God, contrary to Paul's own statements elsewhere. For instance, at Romans 3.31, where he says, Nay, we establish the law. Yet the word which Paul uses everywhere to refer to the law is nomos. To say lawful in the sense of the nomos law, Paul could have explicitly used the term nomimos, which is an adjective directly related to nomos, conformable to usage, custom, or law, customary, prescriptive, established, or lawful. Here, with the word existing, which means it is allowed or it is in one's power or it is lawful, as Liddell and Scott define it, I find, a necess- I find it a necessity to distinguish existing from nomos and nomimos. And therefore, the CNT renders this verse, to me all is possible, but all does not profit. To me all is possible, but I will not yield authority to be brought under any. And that way, there is no confusion in the translation over Paul's regard for the law. The same circumstance appears in 1 Corinthians 10.23, where the Christogenian New Testament reads, All is possible, but all does not profit. All is possible, but all does not build. 1 Corinthians 7.26 is in the AV in part for the present distress. Many wrongly used Paul's comments here to purport that he was somehow promoting abstinence from marriage in general, which is a misconception. That that's a misconception can be seen in 1 Timothy chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, in Titus chapter 1, chapter 2, and in Hebrews 13.4 where Paul said that marriage is valuable in every way. Likewise, the undefiled bed. But rather here, Paul is speaking about the conditions during the persecution of Christians under Claudius and under Nero and the danger of starting a family in such conditions. And that is certainly the reason for his advice here. And for the sorrow he expresses in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 
28. An which is the word that the AV translates distress in 1 Corinthians 7.26. This word means force, constraint, necessity, actual force, violence, or torture. The word is used in a sense of necessity by Paul, where the context fully indicates that, at, one, at Romans 13.5, in 1 Corinthians 7.37, 9.16, and, and on several other occasions. Yet it appears in this stronger sense, for example, violence, at 2 Corinthians 6.4, 2 Corinthians 12.10, 1 Corinthians 1 Thessalonians 3, 7, and for those verses also see 1 Corinthians 15, 30. Here in 1 Corinthians 7, 26, the CNT translates this phrase, because of the present violence, which makes clearer both Paul's statement and his reasons for making it. He was saying, I advise you not to marry because of the present violence. Because if you do, you will have turmoil in the flesh during these persecutions of Christians. Get married today, start a family tomorrow, and get thrown to the lions next week. That's not a good idea. And that's what Paul's saying. 1 Corinthians 9, 17-18. Read in the CNT, quote, For this I do, for I do this readily, I'm sorry, for if I do this readily, I have a reward. But if voluntarily I had been entrusted with the management of a family, what then is my reward? Announcing the good message, that I would set forth the good message without expense, with respect not to abuse my authority in the good message. Oikonomia is primarily the management of a household or family, Liddell and Scott. The most literal meaning in this sense is certainly the most sensible. And I would refer to Amos 3.2, Matthew 10.6, 15.24, Revelations 19.6-9, Revelations 21.12, and many other verses that show that the New Testament promises are only for the family of Israel. The AV here has dispensation. And then it adds words to try to have it make sense. And there are several other words Paul may have used to clearly convey such a meaning. Liddell and Scott lists husbandry and thrift as alternate meanings of the word. And among others, Thayer adds stewardship, which this word often is in the New Testament. None of those fit the context here, although at times they do fit context where Paul uses the word elsewhere. This word appears also at Luke 16, 2, 3, and 4, Ephesians 1, 10, 3, 2, 3, 9, in Colossians 1, and in 1 Timothy 1. It also appears in the Septuagint. Twice at Isaiah 22, 19, and 21. Both times in the same sense that Paul uses it here, as the management of a family. Oddly, 
The AV never translates this word in its primary sense in the New Testament. Even though it is very clear in the Old Testament prophets that it should be understood in this manner. Oikonomia. Management of a family. And that's how Paul used it. In 1 Corinthians 10.11, the King James has, quote, upon whom the ends of the world are come. The CNT reads those same words, to those whom have fulfilled to the, who have attained to the fulfillments of the ages. Katantawo is a word which means to arrive at or to attain to or to come to, Sayer. Paul is not speaking in a spatial sense here, but in a temporal. Telus is the fulfillment or completion of anything. It's consummation, issue, result, or end. And so in the plural here, it is the fulfillments, where the King James has the ends. The King James translates eon, as we've seen, 39 times, and Ahionius, three times, both mean a period of existence or an age. And today we see these, or, or, or the King James translated these 42 times as world. This is one of those occurrences. 25 of those 42 times are in Paul's writing. As it has already been explained, the word world originally meant the age of man. Yet, it is clear that we do not use the term in that manner today. And for this reason alone, we cannot deem the AV as an unquestionable authority because English has changed since then. At 1 Corinthians 16.22, where the King James Version leaving certain words untranslated, reads, If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema maranatha. The CNT has that same verse. If anyone does not love the prince, because Jesus Christ does not appear in a better text there, he must be accursed, a rebel to be destroyed. The veracity of this translation can be demonstrated using a tool as simple as Strong's Exhaustive Concordance. The Greek word anathema means accursed. Maranatha is a Hebrew phrase made up of two words. Mara, for which see Strong's numbers 4751 and 4785. It means a rebel, among other things. And natha, for which see Strong's numbers 54.21 and 54.22. In the passive, natha may mean to be destroyed. Now this may be, seem subjective, but it surely does elucidate not only Paul's great love for Christ, but also Paul's understanding of the nature of the enemies of Christ. The A.V., leaving these words untranslated, hides the truth and neglects its duty. What is a translation for if it is to leave select words untranslated? 
King James reads 2 Corinthians 2.17, quote, For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God. Yet the Greek verb, kapeluo, is a very specific verb, which by no means should be rendered merely as to corrupt. Liddell and Scott define the word, quote, to be a retail dealer, to sell by retail. And the noun, kapelus, is a retail, de- a retail dealer, a huckster, a hawker, or a peddler. Therefore, the beginning of 2 Corinthians 2.17 must be read, For we are not as the many selling the word of Yahweh in trade. Or we are not as the many hawking the word of Yahweh like Jewish street peddlers. But I wouldn't add that to the text. At 2 Corinthians 6.14, the King James translators rendered an adjective as a noun. And it was apparently necessary for them to do so because they did not render the verb as fully as they could have, while also they ignored the meaning of the verb where a different form of the same word was used in the Septuagint. Admittedly, the opening sentence of 2 Corinthians 6.14 is very difficult to translate in few words, although it contains only four Greek words. The Greek, me, geneste, heterozuguntes, apistois, is in the CNT, do not become yoked together with untrustworthy aliens. The AV has here, be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And many people interpret this to be a religious admonition which would have Paul conflict with his own statements, such as those at 1 Corinthians 7, verses 12 to 14, where Paul advises people already married to non-believers to make a go of it. And so, those who interpret this statement religiously make Paul out to be a liar. The truth is that Paul's not a liar, that this is not a religious statement, and that will be evident upon the examination of the terms heterozugio and apistos, the verb and adjective, which, well, one of the verbs and the adjective which appear in this statement. Heterozugio is a verb which appears nowhere else in the New Testament, nor in the Septuagint. However, the adjective heterozugus does appear in the Septuagint at Leviticus 19.19 where the AV itself has Thou shalt not let thy cattle gender with a diverse kind. The Greek is Takatene su which means your cattle U Kadagusais which means do not let gender and the verb implies the act of sexual intercourse, which is what the King James translators meant by gender. Heterozugo, which means with a diverse kind, which is how the King James translators translated it when they read the Hebrew. The idea of being yoked together 
is already implicit. The English translators did not repeat it. Breton's English in the Septuagint, as it was translated from the Greek, varies very little from the AV English of Leviticus 19.19, which was translated from Hebrew. Do not, thou shalt not, let thy cattle gender with a diverse kind, and it's heterozugo, which is translated with a diverse kind in that statement. And so while the Liddell and Scott definition for the verb heterozugeo, which appears in Paul in the New Testament, follows the AV, quote, to be yoked in unequal partnership, unquote, the Liddell and Scott definition for the adjective heterozugus, as it appears in the Septuagint, is coupled with an animal of diverse kind which with people can only mean to be coupled with somebody of another race. And therefore, it is evident that both the A.V. and Liddell and Scott are attempting to convince us that the verbal form of the word somehow has a totally different meaning than the adjective. That's incredible. Here in the CNT, I have yoked together with aliens just like it reads in the Septuagint and the A.V. in the Old Testament of the adjective, preferring the idea that the verb, as it was used by Paul, surely bears the same meaning that the adjective did in the Greek scriptures, which Paul so often quoted verbatim. This word must also be contrasted with sudzugus, which is used in the NT once by Paul at Philippians 4.3, and which Liddell and Scott define as yoked together or paired, and they, they give the phrase Hudzugus homoliahi as meaning wedded union, and as a feminine substantive, Hudzugus can mean a wife. It is a marriage that Christ used the corresponding verb, Hudzugnumi, and while we see that su, which means with or together, and if a sudzugus is one of like kind who's a wife, then hetero, which means other, other than, or different, used with zugus, means an alien who's yoked together to you. That's how the word was used in the, in the Septuagint. That's how it was used. In the Hebrew, when the AV translators read it in Hebrew, and all of a sudden they change it in the New Testament, and that's very, very dishonest. Compounding the errors in the AV translation of this verse, apistos is an adjective, which Liddell and Scott define as not to be trusted, not trusty, distrusted, or faithless. Yet it is treated in the AV as a substantive in this verse, as a noun. It's not a substantive in this verse because it doesn't appear with the article. The CNT has the word as an adjective, which is what it is. If Paul wanted to use this word as a substantive, a simple article would have cleared up any ambiguity. 
With all of this, one may agree that another way to translate this clause, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 6.14, from Greek is, quote, do not become yoked together with those of other races who are not to be trusted. And that is also a literal translation and a message that is consistent with all Scripture. At 2 Corinthians 6.17, the King James Version adds the word thing to the text. The CNT reads the passage thus, Come out from the midst of them and be separated, says the prince, and do not be joined to the impure, and I will admit you. It is asserted here that the phrase, the impure, refers directly to the subject, them, earlier in the passage. And therefore, no added words are necessary in order to understand this verse. The King James translators have added hundreds of words to the New Testament, where in contrast, I've endeavored to add only a handful where it was absolutely necessary. With an honest translation, it is rarely necessary to add words to the text in order to capture the original meaning of the Greek. 2 Corinthians 8.2. This is a good one. By no means does the word haplotes mean liberality, as in connection with giving, that the professional churchmen who translated the AV have it here at 2 Corinthians 8.2. The word is singleness, simplicity, or frankness, Liddell and Scott, and is derived from a root word, aploas, which means single, simple, natural, plain, sincere, or frank. The word also appears at Matthew 6.22 and at Luke 11.34. This word, aplotes, appears in Romans 12.8, where the King James translates it, simplicity. It appears in Ephesians 6.5 and Colossians 3.22, where the King James translates it, singleness, on both occurrences. In my translation, it's simplicity on all three of those occasions. At 2 Corinthians 11.3, this word appears. And it's sincerity in the CNT, where the AV has simplicity. And that's all well and good. That's the meaning of the word. But at 2 Corinthians 8.2, at 2 Corinthians 9.11, and at 2 Corinthians 9.13, where the subject of discussion is economic, the AV translates the word liberality, bountifully, and liberal, respectively. Where in the CNT on each of these occasions, the word is again, sincerity. I must maintain a distinction between giving with sincerity, which is what Paul is saying, and giving liberally or bountifully, as the professional churchmen would have it, who translated the AV, although the meaning of the word does not in any way allow such a mistake, or, or such a translation. I'm sorry. <laughs> this is a blatantly dishonest device on the part of the King James translators. 
who were obviously seeking to enrich the churchmen at the expense of the flock. They take a word that means sincerity or simplicity, and they translate it into liberality and bountifully when it comes to giving to the church, as they interpret it. That's dishonest. That's crookery. 2 Corinthians 9, 4. There's a word, hypostasis. It's a noun. And it would better be rendered matter. Where the King James somehow treats it as an adjective and gives it a tenuous definition. Confident. The word boasting appears in the late manuscripts from which the King James was translated, but it is not in any of the more reliable Greek manuscripts. 2 Corinthians 9.11 and 2 Corinthians 9.13. As it was noted above in discussing 2 Corinthians 8.2, here in 9.11 and 13, the AV translates aplotes, which means singleness, simplicity, or frankness, first as bountifulness, which is a noun, and then as an adjective, liberal, where the word is a noun. It's not an adjective in 9.13. Furthermore, in 2 Corinthians 9.13, the King James Version translates koinonia, which is a noun and means communion, association, partnership, or fellowship. They translate it as distribution, a meaning which the word simply does not have. It appears to me as if the professional churchman translating the King James Version treated these words in a manner which perpetuates the wealth of their own priesthood. The AV translations here are blatantly dishonest and even criminal perversions of Scripture. Here, I will read the passage at 2 Corinthians 9, 10-15 from the CNT. Quote, Now he who is supplying besides seed to he who is sowing also wheat bread for food, he will supply and he will multiply your sowing, and he will increase the produce of your justice, the he being Yahweh, of course, in every way being enriched with all sincerity, which through us accomplishes gratitude to Yahweh, being enriched with all sincerity. Because the service of this ministry is not only its replenishing of the deficiencies of the saints, but also... It's having abundance through many thanksgivings to Yahweh, through the proof of this service honoring Yahweh, upon the submission of your agreement to the good message, or the gospel, of the anointed, or of Christ. And sincerity of the partnership for them and for all. Nothing to do with giving money liberally to the church. And in their entreaty for you, yearning for you for the sake of the favor of Yahweh overflowing upon you, now, gratitude to Yahweh for his indescribable gift. Two Corinthians ten two, from the King James reads in part, but I beseech you that I may not be bold when I am present with that confidence. The Greek phrase is, deomahi de tome paron sare sahi te. The AV rendering of 
strips the word paron of the negative particle may which belongs to it. May paron meaning not being present. And it applies the negative particle instead to the verb which follows, fare sahi. This is a peculiar reading which was apparently necessitated by their also having misread the verb. In any event, it is blatantly wrong. Tare Sahi, from Tharseo, Strong's number 2293, to be bold, in the King James, I may not be bold, with a negative particle that was ripped off of another word, is read... Thare Sahi is read in the King James in the first person. Another verb in this verse, Talme Sahi, from Talmeo, 5111, to dare, is read by the King James as an infinitive. The Sahi suffix, dash S-A-I, that both of these verbs carry, is found in Greek in the second person medium or passive or in the infinitive, but it is never found in the first person. This form is found again at 13.7, poie sahi, and that is correctly rendered in the AV in the second person, you should do, being in the subjunctive mood. Here in the CNT, I have read both verbs, palme sahi and poie sahi, in the second person as they should be. And the context shall speak for itself. I will quote, But I want not being present. That you would be bold with the confidence with which I reckon that you should be daring towards certain others who are reckoning us as walking in accordance with the flesh. So the AV here bears two significant grammatical errors. And I know it may may not sound like much in, in 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 context, but they've made two serious grammatical mistakes here by taking a second person verb and rendering it in the first person, and taking a negative particle away from the verb it belongs to and putting it on another verb. And, and that's that. There's some really um, sophomoric Greek translation here. It, it's very poor. In 2 Corinthians 11:17, the King James Version has a particular phrase. I speak it not after the Lord. The Greek word kurios, as explained earlier regarding Romans 14:6, is primarily an adjective. The CNT renders this clause, I do not speak with authority, meaning that he, Paul couldn't give the advice he had to give from the Scripture. The King James, wherever they saw curios, whether it was an adjective or whether it actually was a noun, they just translated it, the Lord, because that's what they were used to doing. Basically, the word is an adjective. It means authority. 2 Corinthians 13.5, adokimus, is an adjective. Translated as a noun here in the King James, where the word is rendered reprobate. But it's not a noun, it's an adjective, and it means spurious. In 2 Corinthians 13.5, it should have been translated spurious, not reprobates. Galatians 1.18. Here the King James 
renders the verb historio simply as to see. Yet the word means to inquire into a thing, to learn by inquiry, to examine, or to narrate what one has learned. In the CNT, in Galatians 1.18, it's rendered to relate an account to. Paul was not simply telling us that he saw Peter, but rather that he went to relate an account to him of what had transpired previously. Galatians 3.16, famous verse, right? Here Paul contrasts spermati, the dative singular of sperma, with its dative plural, spermasin. Thayer says of sperma, the singular is used collectively of the grains or kernels sown. But later in his definition, Thayer claims that this is not so here in this one verse. And Thayer then perverts Paul's use of the word and calls it genius in defense of the AV translation here. In the context of this and of other of Paul's epistles, I must read this verse to be a comparison of the several races which were sprung from Abraham. Jacob Israel with Ishmael, which Paul goes on to compare in Galatians 4.21, with Esaridam, which Paul compares in Romans chapters 9 and 10, and even 11, and even those who descended from Keturah. The word seed, as in English, also in Greek and Hebrew, is a singular used collectively of many of a single type. The Greek plural of sperma appears in the NT only at Matthew 13.32 and Mark 4.31, where diverse types are meant. This is true in the Old Testament also, where Zara 22.33, seed, only occurs in the plural in 1 Samuel 8.15, where it is used of crops and diverse varieties are implied. Otherwise, it is always singular, used of a collection of the same type. Many may point to the verb estin here, which is probably the singular is of I me, Strong's number 1510. But here, it should be are, and it is easily demonstrable that estin is often translated are, the plural of our word to be our verb, to be, when referring to a collective noun or a collection of objects. One need not look further than Galatians 4.24 and 5.19 for examples of this, and Luke 18.27 is another example, where we have estin in the Greek being used with a collective noun, which is singular. The verb is singular. But in English, when we translate it, we have to render it plural, with the collective noun. The word Christos is also a Greek adjective, and it literally means anointed. Used with a definite article, it is also a substantive, which is a word or group of words which formulate a noun, and is used to refer to the anointed one, or more familiarly, the Christ. 
Yet it can also be demonstrated that the phrase, Ho Christos, the anointed, also refers to the children of Israel as a group. This is something else which the King James translators missed entirely. However, the veracity of the statement is demonstrated with a proper inspection of the scriptures. At Hebrews 11, 24-26, at 1 Timothy 5, 11-12, at 1 Corinthians 1, verses 10-13, to and at Romans 9, verses 1-5. to This is explained in the paper on Christogenia, for which see Christogenia.org slash anointed. Yahweh's anointed, the children of Israel, is the title of the paper. Since sperma may be translated race, as Liddell and Scott attest, in all fairness, Galatians 3.16 may have been translated, not to Abraham the promises have been spoken, and to his race. It does not say, and to races, as of many, but as of one, and to your race, which is anointed. In any event, the word sperma can only be a singular noun which describes a collection of objects of the same variety. Galatians 3.16 is an exceptional example of the method of most mainstream Bible translators who first make up their minds as to what the Bible says, And then they twist the meanings and grammar of the Greek words to agree with their objectives. Galatians 4.5, where the AV renders the clause that we might receive the adoption of sons. The CNT has it that we would recover the position of sons. The verb, apolambano, is to recover. But the King James translates it merely to receive. If it were the intention of Paul, the writer, to say receive, then lambano, without the prefix, would have been sufficient. For apolambano, Liddell and Scott have, to take or receive from another, to receive what is one's due, to take back, to get back, regain or recover. Lambano is simply to receive. The King James more properly renders apple lambano as receive again at Luke 6.34. Paul uses the word in the sense of to receive what is one's due at Romans 1.27 and Colossians 3.24. It's recovered in the context at Luke 15:27, where the AV also has received. Rendering receive here, when the meaning of the verb is obviously stronger, is at least an abdication of the responsibility which Christians have to examine the scriptures. And at the most, it's deceptive. Coupled with the mistranslation of huelcesia as adoption rather than as the position of a son, for which see the discussion concerning Romans 8.15 earlier, it is surely deceptive 
since it is tantamount to creating a new religion, which is exactly what they did. Errors such as this appear in the King James Version rather consistently. And so, it has in essence created a new religion that is not Christianity. Because it breaks the new covenant away from the promises of the new covenant found in the Old Testament. Noting Deuteronomy 14.1, that the children of Israel are the children of God. And knowing that Paul is addressing lost Israelites and only lost Israelites, for which see Galatians 3.13, 3.15, 3.16, 3.22-26, Galatians 4.3-6, through where he says the law was our schoolmaster. Galatians 4.28, Galatians 4.31, and Galatians 5.1, these statements made to Galatians would be utter nonsense if Paul knew that he was addressing, unless Paul knew that he was speaking to lost Israelites. Those of the Assyrian deportations and times earlier. And so here, one can only write recover if one wants to write honestly. The CNT renders Galatians 4-5, quote, in order that he would redeem those subject to law, that we would recover the position of sons, which indeed we are, if we are, if we are Adamic people. Galatians 4.9, there's a word, an ofen, from above, which was totally ignored by the AV translators here. The CNT has the final clause of this verse, to which you from above again desire to be enslaved. It's a rhetorical question. It may have been rendered, to which you who are from above again desire to be enslaved. The verb aimi often being implied in Greek. To me, it means that the way I have written it. And we have to fill in the meanings with our minds because they're not explicit with Greek in the Greek. Galatians five three Peritemnomeno a present medium dative participle of peritemno. And the King James is rendered is circumcised. In the CNT the word is rendered getting himself circumcised. Verbs in the medium voice, again, properly indicate that the initiator and the recipient of the action are one and the same. Surely, Paul's statement at Galatians 5.3 is not considering those infants who are circumcised involuntarily, which is a common practice today due to our Judaized medical profession. And Paul is not considering them to be bound to be judged by the law. While he may strive to, the Jew cannot possibly disrupt our relationship with Yahweh, as Paul also explains in Romans chapter 8. And here Paul says that those who get themselves circumcised, which is what the Greek word means, are bound to be judged by the law. In other words, if you choose to be a Judaizer and follow the rituals 
you'll be bound to follow all the rituals and to be judged by the rituals. Ephesians 1.5, again, this verse should be read in part, having preordained us into the position of sons. Ephesians 2.12, here, the AV, has a phrase, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, yet there is no such noun in the text. The word is a verb. It is not a substantive, and it is inexcusable to translate it as a noun, except that, obviously, the AV translators did not understand the message. So rather than translate the Greek and then figure out why it says what it does, they conclude first what it means, and then they twist the meanings of the Greek to agree with their conclusions over and over again. This is another clear example that we must reserve every right to examine the original scriptures and not merely accept the government-approved translation as the unerring word of God. There is no word aliens in Ephesians 2.12. Paul is addressing people who were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and that is what he says. Lost Israelites. Period. Ephesians 2.19 Paroikoi is sojourners, and it's absolutely not foreigners, as the AV has it. Forms of this word appear often in Scripture. From Paul's perspective, perspective, sojourners are emigrants, not immigrants. They are a people alienated, and not aliens. For a people alienated, see Ephesians 2.12 that I just discussed above, or Colossians 1.21. Paul speaks of aliens at 2 Corinthians 6.14, as I've discussed above, and at Hebrews 11.34. And he doesn't speak well of aliens. He tells us to stay away from them. Ephesians 3.2. The King James translation translates this verse, quote, if you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given to me, you word. Yet again, oikonomia is primarily the management of a household or family. And I discussed this at 1 Corinthians 9, 17 and 18 above earlier. In the CNT, this verse is translated, Indeed, if you have heard of the management of the family of the favor of Yahweh, which has been given to me in regard of you, Paul's reference to the family of the faith, as he says in Galatians 6.10, along with many other remarks, shows that Paul's message is brought to the family of the children of Israel, an idea which is clearly represented throughout Paul's letters, but which the King James translation attempts to obfuscate as much as they possibly could. At Ephesians 3.6, the phrase which the King James translates that the Gentiles should be is certainly better rendered. Those nations which are, or even which nations are, or those nations that are, be heirs to the covenant. The verb inahi is a present infinitive. It is not a subjunctive 
as the King James translates it, should be. That's not what it is. It's an infinitive. There's a big difference. All of these errors in the King James Version, they may be seemingly minor when each of them is examined independently, yet they have been taken advantage of by the unscrupulous in order to create a new religion, which is entirely alien to the scope of the promises outlined in Jeremiah 31.31, Ezekiel 16.62, Ezekiel 34.25, and all of the other prophecies concerning the coming of Christ and the redemption of the children of Israel. Yet Paul and his cohort Luke, as many people consider him, absolutely knew and themselves attest consistently to this very fact. For example, see Luke 154 to 55. See Luke 172 to 74. They absolutely knew, Paul and Luke, that these promises were only for the children of Israel. When Paul is translated properly, it is absolutely manifest in his epistles. Ephesians 3.13. The King James opens this verse with the clause. Wherefore, I desire that you faint not. Where in the CNT it is read, on which account I beg for myself not to falter. The Greek clause is, Dio ahitumahi me eg kakain. The fir- first, the verb ahitumahi is the first person present medium indicative of ahideo, which is, to ask for oneself, or to claim, but it's often used just like the active. However, here it cannot properly be used as an active verb, because there is no object supplied. And it especially cannot be read as the KJV has it, I desire that you, since there is no you in the text. Here, It must naturally be read, as a medium voice verb should be, I ask myself or I beg myself. As the medium voice primarily indicates, once again, that the initiator and the recipient of the action of the verb are one and the same. Additionally, the verb rendered to falter here in the CNT, egkakine, is an infinitive verb, and it is not a second person present active as the King James Version renders it. They can't get a verb straight. Paul is clearly stating that he begs for himself not to falter in his duties on behalf of the assemblies. Again, we have two clear, obvious grammatical errors in one sentence. Ephesians 3.17 That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith is the way the King James reads it. And the Greek is, katoi kesahi ton kristan, dia tes pistios en tes kardiahis humon. I know you don't get it, but that's okay. Well, when I put the notes up, and you can read it, you'll probably be able to recognize it. Yet, ton kristan here is in the accusative case. It's the accusative form of ho Christos. And therefore, the phrase 
must represent the object of the verb and not, as the King James has it, the subject. They've taken the accusative subject, object of the verb and they've made it the subject. A cl- another clear grammatical error. The word, the verb, katoike sahi, being an infinitive form of katoikeo, may mean to administer, to govern, or to establish. Once it is realized that the phrase, ho Christos, may refer to the children of Israel collectively as the anointed, as has been discussed above in the remarks for Galatians 3.16 and elsewhere, and the accusative case of the noun phrase, ton Christon, is retreated properly. It is evident that this phrase may much better and absolutely correctly be rendered to administer the anointed through the faith in your hearts. Where it is evident in context that Paul is talking about caring for one's Christian Israelite brethren. Christ himself has no need for our administering to him. Rather, he demands that we administer to our brethren on his behalf. And that's what Paul is telling us here. Again, these are clear grammatical errors in the King James. They might seem very minor when when looked at independently, but when we take them as a body, we find a totally different Christianity, a totally different religion. Ephesians 6.1, and curioi, is better rendered in authority and not, as the King James reads, in the Lord. Likewise, at Ephesians 6, 6, 8, parakuriu is better rendered as, quote, as appropriate, unquote. The King James translators failed to render the adjective curios in its primary sense, and instead they always imagined it to be a reference to God or to Christ. Ephesians 6 1 should say, Children, you must obey your parents in authority, for this is just. Philippians 1 1. Paul and Timothy, bondmen of Christ, Yahshua, to all the saints among the number of Christ, Yahshua, who are in Philippus, along with the supervisors and ministers. Episcopus, Strong's number 1985 is supervisor here. The word is one who watches over, an overseer, a guardian. And it is actually the word through the late Latin equivalent episcopus from which our English word bishop is derived. In the CNT, this word is translated literally to avoid any endorsement of the man-made church hierarchy which words such as bishop represent. And although often diaconus, Strong's number 1249, is translated minister in the CNT, the word minister should always be understood as a servant to the assembly, as the word minister is literally a servant, and that's the definition of the word diaconus. But bishop is simply not an English word at all. It only made it into our vocabulary because the King James Version was purposely translated in a manner which gave the appearance that the New Testament 
actually confirmed the hierarchical organization of the Anglican Church. Therefore, if you worship the Anglican Church, you may insist upon using the AV. For my own part, I prefer to worship Yahweh my God and to examine his will, even if I am too, follow, too fallible a man to obey it. Philippians 1.4, where in the CNT we read in part, quote, I yearn for you all in the affections of Christ, Yahshua, unquote. And in Philippians 2.1 we see, quote, if any affections and compassions, unquote. The word translated affections is splanknon. And that literally does mean bowels, as it appears in the AV. However, it's very clear from classical Greek writings that the bowels were seen by the Greeks as the seat of our emotions or passions. And in classical Greek, this word was also used very often in the same manner as it is in the AV to mean affections or feelings. Therefore, it must be translated in such a manner so that we can understand the word as the Greeks themselves often used it. So bowels is just a, a poor translation, wherever it appears. Philippians two fourteen through 16. Do all things apart from murmuring and disputing, that you would be perfect and with unmixed blood, blameless children of Yahweh in the midst of a race, crooked and perverted, among whom you appear as luminaries in the cosmos, upholding the word of life for a boast with me in the day of Christ, that not in vain have I run, nor in vain have I labored. The word blameless here is from amomus. That comes from the negative particle a, which is equivalent to the English un, and momus, which is blame, ridicule, or disgrace. The word perfect is from amemptus, from the negative particle a, and from the verb memphomahi, which is to be blamed or blameworthy. Where amemptus is also defined as not, not to be blamed, blameless of things perfect in its kind. Liddell and Scott. The phrase, with unmixed blood, is from akarahias, which primarily means unmixed, pure in blood, and is derived from the negative particle a and the verb karahi. The, the, verb, the verbal form of karahias, karahias is an adjective, I'm sorry, which means to mix or to mingle. The verb is karanumi. Set in contrast to the phrase, Ganeus scolius kahi diastromenes, which literally means a race crooked and perverted. Set in contrast to that, it is both morally and intellectually dishonest to gloss over or ignore the message of racial purity meant by Paul in his use of the words amemptus and akarahias, blameless and with unmixed blood, which are joined here with the entreaty to do all things, 
surely referring to every jot and tittle of the law. The word of life of verse 16. These words might mean other things by themselves. But when they appear with a race crooked and perverted, in the context of race, akarahias can only mean what it literally means, with unmixed blood. Otherwise, we're taking it totally out of context. This is the clear racial message, and it is absolutely ignored by all modern translators and all professional churchmen. They make up their mind what the Bible says, and then they translate it to suit their position. Philippians 3.20 in the CNT says, Of us, the government in the heavens exists. The word government is from the Greek word polytuma. And polytuma means literally nothing but government. There is no excuse as to why the AV translates this word as conversation here. Our conversation is in heaven. Not only takes a, a word, polytuma, and assigns to it a definition that it never had, it also perverts all of the grammar of the phrase. There is no excuse as to why the AV translates polytuma as conversation here, except that their rendering was for political purposes, to conceal the nature of the kingdom of heaven from the common people, that we should rule over ourselves. We only have one head. Yahshua Christ, and not be opposed or oppressed by professional priests and kings. Yahshua Christ is our priest and our king. In Philippians 3.20, Paul does not say, our conversation is in heaven. Paul says, of us, the government in the heavens exists. That's the perfectly literal rendering. Philippians 4.18 the AV has, but I have all and abound. Yet the verb, ap echo, is to keep off or away from, to keep apart, to hold oneself off, to abstain or to desist from. Echo alone is I have. Here the verb is ap echo. It means to abstain. The CNT reads this phrase quite properly. Now, I abstain from all things, yet I abound. Here, I will end this first portion of Errors Inspired by Who. Yet, I'll add a disclaimer or two. I do not consider the Christogenian New Testament to be infallible. I know that I, as a fallible man, am capable of making both oversights and errors. Yet I also pray to Yahweh that the errors I have made, I am still able to discover and correct as I learn and as I become conscious of them. Or if I do not, that others may go behind me and correct them, in return learning at least something from whatever work that I may have done correctly. But the King James Version how can any man view it as the inspired and infallible work of God when it contains 
so many of the errors of men. Have I not demonstrated that it contains many errors in only these few pages? Or are we to ignore the meanings and the parts of speech of the Greek words and accept blindly the assertions of these men simply because they were anointed by another man who happened to be a king and a Catholic one at that? And if any former king were infallible, then why don't we obey all of them today rather than just this one? Other earthly kings use different Bibles, or even often enough wouldn't even let us have a Bible. We Christians have a commission to examine all things and to examine the Scriptures, which, when those words were written, meant the Hebrew and the Greek copies of the Scriptures. For English as we know it didn't even exist. This I will continue to do, to examine the scriptures in their original languages. I will not be reduced to being a respecter of persons or a worshiper of the works of other men's hands, as the King James authorized version certainly is. They were no more inspired than any of us can claim to be today. Let it also be said that the King James Authorized Version's translation was commissioned with strict orders from the king and from the Anglican bishop as to how it was, be conduct, how it was to be conducted, and that after it was completed, it virtually became the only lawful version printed or imported into all of England. In an original preface to the book, the translators themselves made the claim that their edition was, quote, the word of God in English, unquote, which is a preposterously brazen claim. All other translations were virtually outlawed, especially after the restoration of the crown, when the competing Geneva Bible suffered, along with the fate of Puritanism in England. By the end of the 17th century, due to circumstances both political and commercial, it became virtually the only English-language version in print for a long time. Yet during the 18th and 19th centuries, the text of the King James Version was more in the hands of printers than of scholars. And there was much contention over the various versions which grew out of the commercial rivalry among them as updates were made to reflect changes in the English language itself. There was also a lot of contention among the scholars, many of whom continued to prefer the Vulgate and other earlier editions. However, in the 18th century, the acceptance of the King James Version's claim to be the inspired Word of God began to take hold, and that has all the makings of a cult. It is a cult. If you worship the King James, you've joined the cult. The Christian duty is to examine all things. Thank you. That's it for tonight. I think I'll be here tomorrow night with um, Sword Brethren, and we'll be continuing with Nesta Webster and talking about the German Revolution of 1871. I'll be at net on Monday for the Christagenia Open Forum, and Eli will be here tomorrow at noon 
to continue his series with Greg Howard on a testament of the patriarchs. This is William Sank for Eli James. Thank you, and good night. Praise Yahweh.